1: Plus. Good morning and welcome to What's Going On, a show about making a difference in our lives and and our communities. I'm Lorraine ballard Morrow. It's been 50 years since the enactment of the Clean Water Act. We'll talk about how we're doing. April is National Donate Life Month. We'll talk about why every one of us should consider becoming a potential organ donor. But first, When it comes to COVID-19, it seems as though things are constantly changing and evolving minute by minute. Just as I was about to begin this interview, I got an alert that the CDC has extended the mask mandate on planes and public transit for another two weeks. Philadelphia certainly made the national news by bringing back the indoor mask mandate. And to tell us what the latest is, what the recommendations are and how we can best protect ourselves against COVID-19, we are are now joined by Deputy Health Commissioner in Philadelphia, Dr. Frank Franklin. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Hi, Lorraine. Thank you for having me.
1: Certainly, as I just indicated, it seems as though minute by minute, it's constantly changing when it comes to COVID-19. But what we know right now is that people need to get their vaccination and on top of that, get their booster. So tell us, what is the best advice right now for preventing illness or serious illness and death via COVID-19?
2: You hit the nail on the head and you touched on it in your remarks is to to get up to date on on your COVID-19 vaccinations. If you've already had your series and your boosters, and I'm sure it's time probably for a lot of individuals to get their second round of boosters. So it's important to stay up to date particularly if you're one of those individuals who is in a particularly vulnerable situation, like over a particular age, over 50, um, any particular comorbidities or underlying health conditions. Secondly, you know, wear your mask and particularly, again, when you're in sort of crowded spaces or walking through crowded rooms around others. And finally, if you feel sick or you're not sure whether you've been exposed, either stay home and be sure to get tested.
1: The city of Philadelphia does have a website and resources that allow you to see where you can get vaccinated and also where you can get masks and testing. Tell us more about that.
2: Yes, the city has a website with um, the information, the resources are available to our, our residents for in addition to what the federal government is already doing, but resources for test kits, also get masks from diff- our different hubs, uh, our clinical, our federally qualified health centers. They can also point you in the right direction in the website on city of Philadelphia. So we're, we're looking forward to making sure we keep the distribution flowing. To those individuals who who need it the most.
1: Right. And that website, I believe, is phila.gov slash COVID? Correct. Well, it does have so much great information and resources there. Circling back to the booster shot topic, and that is there's still a lot of confusion, I think, for a lot of people about whether or not they should get a booster shot. There have been some conflicting opinions, (laughs) including from uh, Dr. Paul Offit, uh, one of the top experts on vaccines, who says he's 65, but he's going to hold off on getting that extra booster shot. But what is the health department's official stance on getting that second booster shot?
2: There are individuals like Dr. Offit regarding their personal stance. And I think people should have the option to sort of follow their personal convictions around the boosters. Um, However, the department is we're in a campaign to encourage vaccinations. And we think that Um, In order to reduce the spread of of the virus, reduce the likelihood of being hospitalized, it is important to get the vaccines. They're safe um, to get the boosters. Again, if you're uh, one of those individuals who are at a greater risk for because of underlying health conditions or age, Immunocompromise, again, sort of one of those underlying health conditions. We're of the position that you should get your vaccine. You should stay up to date on your boosters.
1: The other thing, too, is I think there's a sort of a um, kind of a misunderstanding about what a vaccine is. Certainly, for the Mm -hmm. most part, it does protect you against the COVID-19 infection. But uh, there are some folks who have had their shot, they've gotten their booster and they still get COVID. But I think mm-hmm. the most important thing to point out, as I'm sure you would agree, is that what it does is it reduces by like 90 percent your chances of getting seriously ill. And that's really the aim right now, isn't it? Just to make sure that people do not get seriously ill, because I and I think all of us know someone who was not vaccinated and who has passed mm-hmm. away as a result of being in, infected with COVID-19. Well, I think
2: that's a, an extremely important point you bring up um, regarding the COVID-19 vaccine, but there has been a vaccine that sort of totally prevents 100% of, of getting a disease or disorder. It's more about preventing severity of illness and reducing the spread. And the COVID-19 vaccine is no different than any other vaccines. When we wipe out a particular virus, it doesn't necessarily go to somewhere like another planet, like, you know, polio or something like that. If if we have enough individuals who are not getting polio vaccinations, then it, it increases the likelihood that we'll get outbreaks in in polio or other diseases.
1: Right, I think Philadelphia has done pretty well, relatively speaking, in terms of people getting vaccinated, and as a result of that, that means that it really helps uh, prevent even further spread of the disease. And, And that's also part of the point of getting vaccinated. And certainly, once again, we can't begin to emphasize enough how important it is to be vaccinated and then once vaccinated to get that booster shot. And then if you are one of those individuals that are 50 or older, or if you are immunocompromised or have something like diabetes or some other types of diseases that could make you more at risk, then that extra booster shot is really something you might want to consider. Thank you so much for joining us again. Once again, villa.gov slash COVID-19 is the website to go to for all the information, all the resources that you could possibly need. Very, very nice to speak with you. Deputy Health Commissioner, Dr. Frank Franklin, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: My pleasure. Again, thank you for the invitation.
1: You're listening to What's Going On. I'm going to take you into the time machine right now. April 22nd, 1970, 20 million people took to the streets across the United States to protest environmental destruction. The nation had recently witnessed the devastating impacts of the Santa Barbara oil spill and had seen the photographs the first ones of the earth taken by the astronauts back in the day and probably most of you don't remember him but there was a famed anchor man named Walter Cronkite he put it this way in a special CBS news broadcast he said earth day participants had a common cause of saving life from the deadly byproducts of that bounty the fouled skies the fouled skies the filthy waters the littered earth that activism that came out of those demonstrations Led to the founding of the Environmental Protection Agency and passage of lots of legislation, including the Federal Clean Water Act. 50 years later, let's take a look. How clean are our waters after the passage of that law? Let's talk about it. And we're going to be speaking with this, uh, on this topic with, and I just lost my place. Uh, Okay. Oh, (laughs) here we go. That's all right. Eric Schaefer, the environmental, from the Environmental Integrity Project in Washington, D.C. Eric, thanks for joining us again. It's always interesting to hear what you have to say about uh, the many different aspects of uh, environmental challenges that we uh, now face. Uh, But now we're going to be talking about water and clean water. How are we doing as we look Back after 50 years, how are we doing as far as clean water in this country and also in Pennsylvania?
3: Maybe a little good news to start with. It it may help to be as old as I am to appreciate what the Clean Water Act did for us. When I was a teenager in the Washington, D.C. area right across the river in Virginia, you could smell the Potomac. It was eye-watering. If you roll the windows down on a summer day, we have the famous images of rivers catching fire yes. at Cahoga River. And people used to say it didn't flow. It oozed <laughs> with uh, oil and grease and other pollutants. Well, you can canoe down the Cahoga River now. We have, for the most part, advanced wastewater treatment at sewage plants. And Incredibly, 50 years ago, we didn't and we've seen some big improvements it really to think if we had not passed that law how things would be today with uh, 130 million more people in the us and new industries springing up uh, we we'd really be in very bad shape that said you know the law did say this is we want fishable swimmable water by 1983 we want to stop the discharge of all pollutants into navigable waters by 1985. Or those were the days when we dreamed big. And let's acknowledge those were really ambitious goals, but we're, we're pretty far from meeting them. They're ambitious, but they're still worthy and something we should always be aiming for. And we've got a lot of work to do before we can get closer to realizing that promise. If I can set this up quickly to explain how the law works, the states are required periodically to assess, evaluate the condition of the rivers, streams, lakes, and if they have them, you know, bays and estuaries, and decide whether or not they are healthy. That means answering questions like, can you swim in the water or recreate in the water? Is the water safe enough, healthy enough to support fish and other aquatic life. So those are the questions you have to answer. If the answer is no, then the waters are considered impaired, which basically is a fancy way of saying too polluted. Then the requirement is to clean them up. In the last round of reviews, states all told, all 50 states, looked at 1.4 million miles of rivers and streams, found 700,000 of those miles, to be impaired, too mm. polluted, too dirty to swim in, too unhealthy to support aquatic life. In Pennsylvania, you have twenty-five thousand miles of rivers and streams that are impaired, considered too polluted. That's about a third of the waters that Pennsylvania assessed, or a little less than a third. Looking at the picture nationally, uh it's a little better. You got a third of your Water is not meeting standard, as opposed to half, which is the national average. But when looking from state to state, there are always questions about the quality of the review, how hard you looked, and so on. And not casting any doubt on Pennsylvania's analysis, I'm just saying it's we, we don't have, and we need a very common set. Of metrics that allow you to easily compare one state's performance to the next. But however you look at it, 25,000 miles is a lot. And That's have, a lot to clean up.
1: And I have to ask you, um, has the nature of the types of pollutants changed over time? Because there was a time when factories would just dump their chemicals and waste right into the river directly. Uh, raw sewage would sometimes be dumped into our waterways. Has that changed in terms of the nature of the kinds of pollutants that we're facing?
3: That's a great question and it has. We had mostly what's called primary treatment. We didn't have the second stage of treatment in sewage plants. So you've got a lot of barely treated wastes. The older systems had pipes where stormwater and sewage was combined and dumped into water. We still have a lot of breaks in older systems that dump sewage into rivers and streams. That, that's illegal, it still happens. Almost every city of any size is working under a federal consent decree that sets markers by which they have to get their sewage system overhauled. So we've had progress there. We've still got a ways to go. I think, though, 50 years ago, we did not have the kind of agricultural system we have today where about 90% of the meat that Americans consume come from the so-called factory farms those answer to about a half dozen very large maybe maybe as many as 10 very large companies who contract with those growers and take their product take the chickens take hogs or cattle but don't take any responsibility for the cleanup that's a big problem and what we've seen from these operations is stack a lot of animals on too little land which means a lot of excess manure that ends up washing into rivers and streams. We've got a persistent problem there that we haven't grappled with. And if you look across the country, agricultural sources, this is from EPA, are generally the predominant source of pollution. Now that varies from state to state. You still have industrial pollutants. We have new pollutants like PFOS and PFOA. Right. I think you've probably covered those. They weren't on the radar. We've never heard of them back in 1972, but they were used to make Scotchgard and Teflon. They've gotten everywhere into the water since they're a big cleanup
1: challenge. In fact, it's up in uh, the Antarctic and the uh, Arctic Circle that they found some of those chemicals. How do they get up there? Who knows? But they're so everywhere.
3: They are everywhere. And they're very difficult to... Clean up because they don't break down in the environment. They don't degrade very easily. In fact, that's why they were used for things like Teflon and Scotchgar, because they're so tough. But they're also bad for you, and that's a big cleanup challenge. One more is that climate change is affecting water quality. In the east, we're getting more rain and heavier rain when the rain comes, that means more runoff. You get more pollutants washing off city streets and off farms. In the West You get hotter rivers and streams that no longer support trout and other.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?
3: Fisheries that are really the pride of places like Oregon and Washington. You've got, of course, great trout fishing in Pennsylvania. You know, if we see temperature changes, it'll be a problem in Keystone State as well.
1: Well, let's talk about what we can do about it. As I referred to at the beginning of this interview, uh, there was a huge outpouring of concern and activism around environmental issues that led to Earth Day, led to the EPA. Uh, that led to this legislation uh, that impacted water and also air. I mean, there are all sorts of legislation that occurred out of the activism from the 70s. So as individuals, as, as community members, what can we do?
3: We need that activism to come back. You know, tackling a problem like the overwhelming amount of pollution we get from factory farms and even fixing city sewer systems, there are legal and technical challenges, although the Clean Water Act does give us tools, but really they're also political questions. People who are making the decisions need to feel like the public cares. That's really important, so I would ask anybody who does care, and the the polls show that most people do, let your legislators, federal and state know. Important clean water is to you. The state will periodically, and this is for people who are willing to put a little more time into it, they will post their decisions on whether they think a water quality is meeting standard or not, whether it needs a cleanup or not. You can comment on that, you can weigh in, and you can find the creek that's nearest you, the river that you fish and swim in. See what the state is doing about it, and weigh in. And look on the Department of Environmental Quality's website; you'll find that information.
1: Looking to the future, looking ahead, how do you are you optimistic? Are you uh, pessimistic about the future of our water in this country?
3: I have to be optimistic. Uh, if you were could time travel, as I said, back to nineteen sixty nine or nineteen seventy, it looked pretty bad. And we've still got a long, long way to go. And there are some places that are somewhat worse than they were back then. But we did make progress. We lurched forward and saw change. I think we can do it again. I think we roll our sleeves up and you know, put our hearts and minds to it. We can make progress.
1: If people would like more information about the Environmental Integrity Project, how do they find out more?
3: Go to environmentalintegrity.org. I apologize for the long-winded name, but if you go to environmentalintegrity.org on our website, you'll see the report and more information about what we do.
1: Fantastic. Eric Schaefer, Executive Director of the Environmental Integrity Project and also former Director of Civil Enforcement at the EPA. Thanks a lot for joining us today.
3: Thanks, Lorraine. Always a pleasure.
1: April is National Donate Life Month. More than 100,000 people are waiting for an organ transplant in the U.S. 20 people die every day. Waiting. Gift of Life reports that more than 5,000 men, women, and children are currently waiting for a life-saving organ transplant in this region. We're going to talk about the importance of organ donation with Rick Haas. He's Gift of Life president and CEO, and we'll also speak with someone who can speak from direct experience about how incredibly important and precious an organ transplant and donation is. Brian Rath is a transplant a recipient, and he's going to share with us his journey. Well, I'm going to start with you, Rick. It is Organ Donation Month National, and there is always a struggle. We're better at it than we were, but still there are more people who need organs than there are organs to transplant. Tell us more.
4: Yeah, Thanks, Lorraine. Uh, April is uh, National Organ uh, and Tissue Donation Awareness Month. It's really a special time of the year for us really to highlight the number of people who are waiting. And really the imbalance that we have. Last year, as you know, we were the most successful organ procurement organization in the United States. But with that, we transplanted 1,700, uh, over 1,700 organs, but there's 5,000 patients that are waiting. So we have a lot more work to do. Uh, We work, work in really the most generous community in the nation which is really a blessing uh, for all of those patients who are waiting. Uh, But, you know, the biggest limitation is people saying yes uh, after someone uh, that is close to them has died. And so the more we can talk about it here during April, the more folks that can be registered uh, and more families can be informed about what somebody wants after their death.
1: Absolutely. I know that me personally have made my wishes known to my family. I have a living will and on my driver's license, it does say organ donor. So I am all in uh, because I totally believe in the importance of being a potential organ donor. Uh, and I'll speak about that in just a second, but I would like to turn to Brian. Brian Rath, you are a organ recipient. Your journey is is kind of interesting. Uh, there's so many different reasons for people needing an organ transplant. Tell us what your situation was.
5: Well, I had had a long illness. Um, I had contracted hepatitis C from a blood product uh, probably in the late 80s or early 90s. Uh, Hepatitis C, uh, it, it attacks the liver. It, over a long period of time. And so for me, um, it was uh, approximately you know, almost 20 years probably of, of, of carrying this virus around that uh, my liver eventually was attacked and deteriorated to the point where um, I was facing a, a, a liver transplant, you know, the desperate need of a liver transplant to survive.
1: And you were a little resistant at first, right? The idea of having an organ transplant wasn't something you said, oh, yes, bring it on. It was uh, it was a journey for you to get to that place.
5: Well, it, it really was. I mean, knowing that I had this illness, um, I knew someday down the road I would need an organ transplant. But when the co- time came and I was getting sicker, I I really was in denial of the condition that I was in. I just sort of put my head down and went through life as though everything was normal. But in reality, I was I was dying slowly and. Um, eventually it reached a point where I couldn't deny it any longer and I was forced to to go into the hospital at the University of Pennsylvania and face what was the reality and that you know that was in July of 2011 that I was finally put on the liver transplant list
1: and you were fortunately able to to get that liver transplant and I, I thought it was very uh, touching and moving that you have the name of the person who for whom you receive the organ from as a picture that you carry with you.
5: Yes. So when I received the transplant, I was told only that uh, it was a 15-year-old girl from Bucks County who was my organ donor. And at the time, I was the father of a 10 and 11-year-old. And I couldn't even imagine having to be a parent that would uh, have to make a decision, not only to, to see my child die, but then to decide to donate her organs it was later after I had written a letter to the family and eventually uh, did make contact with them that I discovered that you know, her name is Caroline. And, uh, you know, and again, she died when she was 15. And I I have her picture and I keep it on my phone. And I cannot hear the song Sweet Caroline without uh, thinking of her and being incredibly grateful that you know, she heard and her parents decision literally saved my life. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, the the story that you tell, Brian's story, Rick, is a story that is repeated time and time again. And certainly you and I and so many of people that we know have been in touch with people who have been either organ recipients or perhaps were an organ donor family. And there is, I'm actually a little bit at a loss for words because it's so emotional, I think, to know that someone could live as a result of a decision that you make, a very simple decision, not a hard decision. And Rick, I know that there are some folks who have certain misconceptions about organ donation. They are afraid that if they declare that they're a potential organ donor, that doctors won't do their best to keep you alive. There are all kinds of misconceptions, right? Tell us what some of those misconceptions are. Let's dispel them right now.
4: Yeah, I think the the most common misperception is that if you put that organ donor designation on your driver's license, that when you come into the emergency room or you're getting treated, that they're going to treat you differently and not try to save your life and just be more concerned with you becoming an organ donor. And that can't be any more further from the truth. The teams that are taking care of you at end of life are trying everything that they can to save your life. And it's not until after your death uh, is organ donation even a possibility or consideration uh, by that team? As Brian and, and, and you so, you know, put it so eloquently, the decision to be an organ donor is a very simple one, but it's also probably one of the most powerful decisions that you'll ever make in your life. You have in your hands the opportunity to, to literally save a life, to take someone from their, their death's bed, Uh, In Brian and give them life by a simple act and a simple decision. And donor families, you know, for the folks who don't put it on their license, who have to make that decision, tell us it's an opportunity for them to write a last chapter. So instead of having that last chapter simply to be that somebody had died, that last chapter could be that they gave life to eight people and that really helps them through that grieving process and helps them memorialize their loved one in a different and meaningful way.
1: There is um, an event that's coming up, the donor dash. And I think it's, first of all, it's, it's just such an um, incredible, a moving experience to be in this crowd of people who are either organ recipients or donor families. And I understand that you are actually, Brian, a runner and you will be running on April 24th.
5: Well, I don't know that I define myself as a runner, but I am going to be running in the donor dash this year in the 5K to celebrate the 10 year anniversary of my transplant. I'm very excited to participate with Gift of Life and to get out and to, uh, to, to run the course just as a sign of success for me. You know, that I have I've lived this gift of life for the last 10 years, and uh, I'm really excited about the event.
1: That's fantastic. And tell us, um, Rick, if people would like to sign up for it or find out more about the Donor Dash. How do they do that?
5: Yeah,
4: it's, it's pretty easy. It's Donor uh, DonorDash.org is, is the website. Uh, we have a 10K run, a 5K run, a kids run, a 3K walk. So there's something for everybody. Uh, And it's really a great opportunity uh, not only to uh, interact with other runners, but we'll have donor family teams. We'll have uh, transplant teams. We'll have physicians and nurses who take care of patients and donors running. We have family members. Uh, It's really a great opportunity for the community to come together, really to celebrate Transplantation and donation.
1: Right. It's a very important message that, um, that we're promoting today and throughout the month of April and certainly actually 365 because there is a desperate need for organ donations. It's so simple. You can let your family know that you want to be an organ donor. You can let uh, the DMV know you can get it on your license and you can also go to um, the website.
4: You can uh, go to our website, www.donors1.org, and then click on the link and sign up.
1: And Brian, I'm going to give you the last word. What would be the message that you would like to share with our listeners out there about why it's so important to be an organ, potential organ donor?
5: My daughter is graduating from college next month. And if it were not for my organ donor who saved my life and for her parents who made the decision to donate her organs, I would not be there to watch her get her diploma. And I am an incredibly proud father that gets to share that moment solely because of my my organ donor.
1: April is National Organ Donor Awareness Month. And if people would like more information on everything that we've talked about today and more, Rick Haas, what is your website?
4: DonorsOne.org.
1: Rick Haas, who is Gift of Life President and CEO. Brian Rath, who is a transplant recipient who shared his transplant journey and is going to be running at the April event, which is Donor Dash on the 24th of April. And I will be there as well. I'm looking forward to it because I have a family member who's on the organ transplant waiting list. Please consider becoming an organ donor. It really will make a difference. You can save a life. Thank you both for joining us today. You can listen to all of today's interviews by going to our station website and typing in keyword community. You can also listen on the iHeartRadio app, keyword Lorraine with one R. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Lorraine Ballard. I'm Lorraine Ballard-Marl, and I stand for service to our community and media that empowers. What will you stand for? You've been listening to What's Going On, and thank you.